All right. So if you're here with us last week, you know that we've made it halfway through the book of Mark. And so today, in a, in a, in a sense, we are going to be starting into the second half, uh, maybe a little beyond that. Uh, and we are going to start looking now. Things are going to ramp up, and very quickly we're going to start seeing uh, Jesus in his last week of his life. It's not that far away. Uh, and we've seen a lot of his ministry up to this point. Uh, and uh, we're going to continue today to see Jesus and to hear him and to see what his ministry was all about, what his ministry is all about, and what our ministry also should be. And so we're going to continue with that this morning. We've got a lot to get to this morning. We've got another two-parter, but we have a lot of introductory things to get through this morning. So I'm going to jump right in. If you've got your, your outlines and some of these fill-ins, you probably already can do by memory if you've been with us as we've gone through the book of Mark. But we will start with review, as we always do, to get us all caught up to where we've been in the book of Mark so far. I'll go through these really quickly. Uh, First of all, we've seen overall through the first half of the book of Mark that Jesus is presented as the suffering servant king who is truly God and truly man. We've seen it in so many different ways and what he's done and what he's taught. We have seen that Jesus indeed is the suffering servant king. Uh, Next, as we've gone through the book of Mark, we see that this authority that Jesus has has brought opposition and pressure. There's been the Pharisees and the, those who are holding to, to tradition that are coming against Jesus and even in his followers are pressuring him to heal and pressuring him and, and he's constantly needing to find ways to get away to be out of that pressure. As this is happening, Jesus continues to teach and demonstrate his kingship. He teaches again and again, the kingdom of God has come and that kingdom has come through him and he indeed is the king that is setting up the kingdom. And he's also not only taught that, but he's demonstrated it through his acts, through his works, through his miracles, through even his provision of the 5,000 and the 4,000 as he teaches and feeds them. And he has shown his kingship. We see that throughout this time, even as he's showing his kingship and teaching his kingship, that Jesus was followed by some and rejected by others who hold to tradition. He's being followed by some, some that are just looking for the miracle, some that truly want to be taught, and then he's also being rejected by many people who aren't ready to accept what he has to say. They're not ready to accept who he truly is, they're not ready to accept the true mission of the Messiah, and then there's those who are rejecting because they're so ingrained in their tradition and what they know they should be doing and how they should do it, and they've made a line that they will not cross by going to faith in Jesus. We see that in the process of Jesus' ministry, he includes everyone. He's not just here for the Jewish people, but he reaches out to the Gentiles. Not only Gentiles, but outcasts of society. Those people that nobody would want to have anything to do with, Jesus specifically takes time and takes his ministry to them. And so we've seen that even in the process of all of this happening, as he's rejected by some, accepted and followed by others, he is not just ministering to one group, but reaching all people. And then finally, last week, we began to understand that Jesus reveals, for the last two weeks, Jesus has revealed his identity and his mission as the Messiah. Jesus has revealed his identity as the Messiah, but also not only his identity, but his mission. And last couple weeks, what we looked at as we looked at Mark is that Jesus is very, very clear about what the Messiah is here to do. He is not here to overthrow the Roman Uh, government he is not here to bring in at this point a physical kingdom where the jews would rule over the whole world although that's what the jews wanted and that's what they expected 
But Jesus says he's indeed going to come to suffer and to die. And even his disciples are having trouble understanding this. But even as he says this, we saw last week as we looked at the transfiguration that Jesus showed three of his closest disciples that all that I have said, I am confirming before you. He transforms, he shows himself to be the glory of God and God the Father says, this is my son, listen to him. And even after this, the disciples aren't sure exactly what Jesus is meaning when he says he's going to rise from the dead and that he's going to have to suffer. But yet, Jesus is confirming that through his transfiguration. So that brings us to today's text. We are going to be in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. As I said, this is going to be a two-part sermon. We're going to go from Mark 9 all the way way through Mark chapter 10. And that will be our two-parter, and then we'll pick up as we go to the triumphal entry. Uh, so as I said, we're, things are happening quickly here. <clears throat> but before we get to re- reading what we're going to be talking about today, before we dive into our main text, we need to introduce it by going back and getting some of the context of what we're about to see in the ministry of Jesus. We're going to see some things happen. We're going to see some teachings of Jesus. We're going to look at these next two weeks. We're going to see how he relates to his disciples and how he's trying to teach them something very specific. But we need to understand what Jesus is doing by going back and getting a little bit of context. Now, I know we've already done review of the whole book, but now we're just going to kind of just do a spotlight of the last couple weeks and see where now Jesus is, is going into In revealing his mission, as we looked at last week, if you will remember, Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. Back in Mark chapter 8, and we'll look at this in a minute, but in Mark chapter 8, we see that Jesus not only says that he's going to suffer and die, but then he calls his disciples to follow him in the same way, to take up their cross and to follow him. Jesus makes it very clear that to be his disciple, to follow him, they would need to follow him. It's not just about words, and it's not just about... Uh, that they would be able to set themselves up on the right and left-hand side of the throne. <coughs> Excuse me. But what they will need to be doing is follow his mission. And what is his mission? I want to look at three passages, one we've already looked at and two that we will later. In chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, three separate times Jesus does something very specific and he does it very strategically. In Mark eight thirty-one. This is what we see Jesus saying. This is after Peter confesses Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the Christ. And in 831, Jesus says this, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Jesus says something that the disciples are not ready to hear. They don't want to understand. And that is that Jesus is going to die. He's going to suffer. And the rise again part, many of his disciples would have assumed that that meant at the end of time. The resurrection of all people. They're confused about what Jesus is even saying here. And they're not truly listening. But he tells them in Mark 8.31. And then he goes into much of what we will look at today. He talks about the transfiguration and then goes into uh, a healing and an exorcism. And we're going to see how that plays into this. But I want to just go ahead before we get to all that and look at nine, chapter 9, verse 31. In the midst of all that we're going to be talking about today and in the midst of Jesus doing ministry and teaching, uh, he uses another opportunity here in Mark chapter 9, verse 31. 
And I'll go back to 30. And they went to, on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. When he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Jesus again plainly says, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again, and they're not quite ready to receive it. And finally, in Mark chapter 10, the next chapter over, starting in verse 33, we see the same thing, because they're on the road again and they're traveling, and he has his 12 and he sees them, and what we see in verse 33 is this, it says, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. As we go on, and we will look at this as we go to chapter 10, we'll see they still don't even get it after this, but three separate times now, Jesus has made it very clear what his mission is. Jesus reveals that he will suffer and die three times in surrounding passages of what we're going to look at today. Now this is, this is important and this is why I believe it's important because what we're going to look at today is the call of discipleship, what it looks like to follow Jesus. And Jesus wants to make it very clear even in the midst of all his teachings on discipleship and how to be a true follower of him, he constantly goes back to the idea that he is going to suffer and die for others. And Jesus wants this, in this in as we look at this today, we need to keep this in our perspective, that Jesus is not just teaching something, but Jesus is about to model it. He's about to set an example of what it looks like to be his follower. And he wants to continually remind his disciples, even as he teaches them, even as he shows them, even as things happen around them, that he is trying to direct their focus to what discipleship looks like. The one thing that he keeps going back to is, look, I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to really practice what I preach is what Jesus is is saying, and it's coming, and you need to be ready for it, because I'm going to suffer, and you will as well. And so Jesus is making that very clear. In fact, we see that as Jesus uses these things to talk about what is going to happen to him, he then relates it back to us. We looked at this last week in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 38. Actually, maybe it was two weeks ago, but back in Mark 8, 34 through 38, we see that Jesus says the call to discipleship, the call to follow him, is to live a life of self-sacrifice. We need to go back to Mark 8, 34, 38, because this passage is going to frame what we're about to look at as we go in chapter 9 and chapter 10. Mark 8, 34 through 38. And says, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We remember back to when we looked at that, Jesus is making it very clear that his suffering, his death, all that he is going to experience is not just for him, but it very well will follow for his closest disciples. That it will follow for anyone who wants to follow him. That he is setting the example that he has already told us three times as we already looked at. And now in Mark chapter 8, he says, look, discipleship, truly following me is about self-sacrifice. There's no question here. He leaves no question. 
Because he says you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. That's what Jesus says. So discipleship is not just saying that you believe in Jesus. Discipleship is not just uh, thinking it's really cool to be around Jesus. Discipleship is to follow even to the point of taking up your cross, being willing to die and give up your life and denying yourself. There is no question that Jesus says, if you truly want to follow me, it will result in self-sacrifice. Obviously, this is not physical. We're not saying you have to sacrifice yourself physically and kill yourself. That's not the point here. The point is very simple, that we need to put ourselves to death in the sense of living for ourselves and instead live for Christ. That's the whole point. That's salvation. That's repentance. It's stopping living for ourselves and doing our best to not live a self-centered life, but instead doing our best to live a Christ-centered life. Because if we truly have faith and we truly believe in Jesus, then that will be the result. And that's what Jesus is saying. I know that was a long introduction, but with all that in mind, Jesus now takes the next couple of chapters to talk about what this self-sacrifice really looks like. The next two weeks, we will look at the things that Jesus expects us as his followers to sacrifice. Sometimes it's through his direct teaching. Other times it might be through his example. And other times it might even just be through something that happens, an event, that he's trying to teach his disciples and also teach us what it means to live a life of self-sacrifice. So we're going to look at three things this morning, and next week we'll look at, I think, four things. And we're going to see what does discipleship mean? What does self-sacrifice mean? And we're going to start by looking at the need, really, to abandon our independence. So the first point you have here, discipleship means sacrificing our self-dependence. And I might say assurance up here, because that was my original word, but I changed it. So if you can write assurance or you can write dependence... Discipleship means sacrificing our self-dependence or our assurance. I think dependence is probably a better word. Uh, The idea here is that we need to say we can't depend upon just ourselves. We can't be independent. We need to be dependent upon Jesus. And where do we get that from? Well, let's start and let's read. And uh, I'm going to read just section by section this morning so we can get a full grasp of what's happening section by section because Jesus, each section is trying to teach something or show something. And so we find ourselves in verses 14 through 29 of chapter 9. So chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, remember this is right after the transfiguration. So uh, Peter, James, John, they're up on the mountain with Jesus, right? All right, so that's that's where this is set. They're coming down the mountain. So verse 14. And when they came down to the other disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and, and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him 
and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that many of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Interesting story here as we come to verse 14. And I believe this does definitely relate to this idea of discipleship. His disciples, he's left many of them, so nine of them behind to go up the mountain to to be transfigured and to pray and to talk. And so they've been up there. They're coming back down. The other nine are down there and there is a commotion going on. We see that the disciples were unable to cast out a demon while Jesus is up on the mountain. So this has created quite a scene. They're coming down and there's this huge scene. There's arguments happening. The scribes are arguing. And our assumption here is that very simply what the scribes are arguing is saying, look, this man came to you to have a demon cast out and you can't even, you can't cast him out. So therefore, it's casting doubt on Jesus. Because if his followers can't do something, then it's casting doubt on Jesus himself. And, and we understand there's this argument happening and there's this scene that Jesus comes into and and now we get to start seeing what's going to happen and he's told what the situation is the the father of of the child says i brought my son to you uh he has a spirit that makes him mute and whenever it seizes him it throws him down so there is this idea once again we've seen this before that there is a demon uh there's demon work here there's evil spirits at work here that are just destroying this young man's life and, and trying to just throw him around to de- completely destroy him. And so he comes looking for Jesus, looking for healing for his son. And Jesus is up on the mountain, so his disciples are there. And his disciples, apparently, as we're told by what the Father says, is I brought him here, and the disciples are unable to help. Well, this is interesting. We do know that Jesus has given the disciples in the past the authority to heal and to cast out demons So something else has to be at work here. Why are they not able to? And Jesus answers that question by questioning everyone's lack of faith. Jesus questions everyone's lack of faith and then casts out the demon. Where do we see this? Well, Jesus says he answered them. And remember, this is to a whole group. It's the scribes, it's his disciples, it's all who are there. O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. O faithless generation, there is an issue here, and the issue is that faith is not being exercised. That there is that the disciples are not doing this out of faith in Jesus. They're not doing this out of the power of Jesus, but they are doing it out of their own power, which we'll see even greater as we continue on here. But the understanding is this whole group is lacking faith. And one person is kind of the one that we see what's happening, because the Father then, after Jesus asked a few questions, he says this, He says, if if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He says to Jesus, if you can do this, could you please do it? And Jesus all of a sudden shows there this, this lack of faith that's happening. And he says, if you can, that's a question. If you can, like how can you say that? All things are possible for one who believes. And I would say this simply. These aren't the exact words that Jesus has used. But basically... Faith is not about the if you can. Faith is not about, well, I'm going to have faith. I think you can. If you can do this, then why don't you do it? That's shallow faith. It's not if you can, but it's if you will. 
Now it says anything is possible for those who believe. This is not a text that is teaching that if you believe that you're going to have a million dollars, that when you go home, there's going to be an envelope of a million dollars sitting on your porch. Does not even mean if you believe with all your heart that some physical problem that you have is going to go away, that automatically will. But what it does mean is that God can and God will if he wishes to. But it's his will, not about his ability. Understand that when we ask God for things and we don't get the answers that we necessarily think we want, he is still the sovereign one. He is still the king. So the question isn't, God, can you do this? It's like, will you do this? It's not if I can, but if I will. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's saying, look, if you believe all things are possible, all things are possible with God. God can heal. God can do miracles in your life. He can do wonderful, crazy, amazing things. And he has and he will. But it's up to him. It's not up to us. And it's not about a lack of ability when he doesn't. It's about a lack of, uh, of his will. So he has a better plan. Whatever that is, we might not understand it. But Jesus is very clear here that faith is not just hoping. Faith is not just a, a hope. We can hope in a lot of things. I hope this will happen. I hope that will happen. And that's not true faith. Faith is knowing that God is in control and that he will do whatever he pleases to do. And so there's this idea here that is seen as we look at this story, as we look at this narrative, and we see, and then then this man, we can learn from this man, right? This man says, uh, listen, he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We don't have the power to believe more, right? I, it's It's not like just gritting your teeth and saying, all right, I'm going to believe more because I need to do it. So I'm going to believe more today. It's not about our effort. And this man understands that he believes, but he needs help. You see, we need to call upon Jesus to ask him to help us believe in him, to trust him completely. Not try to think that we can somehow manufacture it in our own hearts because we can't. We need to run to Jesus, depend upon him, depend upon Jesus to help us have the faith that we need. And when we try to do it on our own, we're always going to fail. We need to abandon self-dependence. And instead, we need to be dependent upon Him. And probably one of the greatest things we see about the lack or needing to abandon self-dependence is here at the end of this passage. After the demon is cast out and Jesus has done the work, His disciples are like, why could we not cast it out? They're confused. They still don't quite understand. And He says to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Jesus tells the disciples that prayer was needed. From the context and from the understanding, and we can assume some things out of this, that these disciples were trying to cast this demon out in their own power. They weren't calling upon God. They weren't calling upon the name of Jesus. You see, they had done it before, and I'm assuming they just thought, okay, we've done it before, we can do it again, so let's just do it. Demon come out, and the demon wouldn't come out. And they may have even been using Jesus' name, but were they truly believing that Jesus had the power to do it? Were they truly of faith? Did they truly say, God can do this, and we're going to trust him by praying that he will cast this demon out, or were they trying to do it in their own strength? I would say by Jesus mentioning prayer here, it's very obvious that these disciples were not trying to get the power of God to heal, but were trying to do it within themselves. They were being dependent upon themselves for ministry. This is, a, this is something we all need to be careful of. 
We cannot in our ministry life, in our life in general, decide that everything depends upon us and we forget to pray and we think if I just work harder or I do more, then things will get better. That's not the case. We need the power of Christ. We need the power of God and the way we get that is through prayer. Prayer is simply saying to God, I can't do this on my own. I need your help desperately. Would you please Allow me to do this or to do that. Would you please give me the ability, give me the strength to live this life, to minister to others, to have the faith that I need, whatever it might be, but we need to come to God in prayer. Some of you might be familiar with the, I guess you can call it an article, it's not quite a full book, but it's called um, The Tyranny of the Urgent by Charles Hummel. And in The Tyranny of the Urgent, it talks about uh, really, how do we structure our life to understand what's most important in life and put most of our, to put most of our effort into what's most important and not in just what's urgent. But in this, in this article, in this, in this writing, he quotes P.T. Forsyth and, and then goes on and says this. I want you to listen to this whole quote from Charles Hummel. P.T. Forsyth once said, The worst sin is prayerlessness. Does this statement surprise us? We usually think of murder and adultery as among the worst offenses against God and humanity. But the root of all sin is self-sufficiency, independence from the rule of God. When we fail to wait prayerfully for God's guidance and strength, we are saying with our actions, it is not with our, if it's not with our words, that we do not need Him. How much of our service is actually a going it alone? The opposite of such independence is prayer in which we acknowledge our need of God's guidance and empowerment. I want to read that one more time. I know it's a long quote, but just listen again. P.T. Forsyth once said, The worst sin is prayerlessness. Does this statement surprise us? We usually think of murder and adultery as among the worst offenses against God and humanity. But the root of all sin is self-sufficiency, independence from the rule of God. When we fail to wait prayerfully for, what God's, guidance, for God's guidance and strength, We are saying with our actions, if not with our words, that we do not need Him. How much of our service actually is a going it alone? The opposite of such independence in prayer in which we, is which we, when we acknowledge our need of God's guidance and empowerment. Worst sin is prayerlessness. Interesting thought. See, part of following Jesus is to sacrifice our life of self-dependence. It's to depend upon Him through prayer through asking Him to help our unbelief, through trusting in Him to work, trusting that He will if He will, trusting in His ability, but trusting in His sovereignty at the same time. That is, self, that is, self, that is sacrificing self-dependence. Our dependence needs to be on Christ and not ourselves. That much we've already seen. We also see as we continue that we need to also abandon our sense of significance and, and where... It should come from. So the next thing we're going to look at is that discipleship means sacrificing self-importance. Sacrificing self-importance. You could use the word significance here if you'd rather, but discipleship means sacrificing our self-importance. And this is where we move on in, in starting in verse 33. And when they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? By the way, we've skipped over one of those sections where Jesus talks about his death. When they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. 
And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in, in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you this cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus says some interesting things here. Let's take a minute to look. That discipleship means sacrificing our self-importance. Jesus challenges his disciples on their desire for greatness, their desire for importance, their desire for significance in the world's eyes. Jesus challenges them on their desire for this greatness. In this first passage in verse 33 through 37, he knows what they've been talking about on the road and he, he puts a little fire under them and says, what were you talking about? And then he says, look, it's not about who's going to be the greatest. He says the greatest. That's not about what it's about. If you want to be greatest, you need to be least. That you need to be last. You need to be servant of all. And then he takes a child. And so we see in this section, Jesus says to be a servant, to follow his example. He is the serving, suffering king. Follow his example and be a servant. That is what our life should be about, not finding importance in what the world says we should find importance in or significance in, but we need to find our, our importance and our significance in Jesus, in serving Him, in serving others. That's what's important. Not to be great, not to be able to rule like the disciples were looking for. And then He brings this child in and He sits him in and He says, you need to receive children like this and you will be receiving Me. Why does He bring a child into this? Well, in Jewish society, the child was probably the least significant person in anywhere. They had no rights, no significance. They were simply almost property to the parents. There was not a whole lot of, of, of love or desire for children. Like today we see children are cute and everybody loves kids and that's great. But back then that wasn't the case. If you're not an adult, you're really nothing. And so we see in the context of that, Jesus brings this kid and he says, this child, and he says, look, he is the very least of what anybody would see, and yet he is the one that you need to receive. You need to receive the least. You need to serve the least. You need to be the least. And that is how you receive me. Jesus makes it very clear that a desire for greatness is not the call of the, of the disciple, but the desire for humility and service is the call of the disciple. In the next section, we see Jesus challenges his disciples on competition. Jesus challenges his disciples on competition. I love competition. I love to, to win. I hate to lose. Some of you are like that. But we need to make sure that competition does not sneak into our spiritual lives. That somehow it becomes a competition with one another, or maybe even another church, or maybe in somebody else we know far away. This is especially sometimes a challenge I know I've heard other pastors say this when they preach. You go to like a pastor's conference and everybody's like talking about their church. It's very hard sometimes when somebody will say, well, I've got this church of so many people and it's growing and this is what's happening and things are just exploding and, and God is doing some great things. And all of a sudden you start to compare yourself. 
And it's real easy to do, and I know probably some of you have done that in the past. And it's not even about uh, a pastor to a pastor, but, or maybe it's not even a church to a church, but maybe it's your spiritual life to somebody else's spiritual life. And we try to, to compare, and we try to compete, and we try to win. Well, that's not the point. This next passage where Jesus is, John comes to Jesus and says, Look, someone was casting out demons in your name, but we tried to stop him because he wasn't with us. He wasn't here with our group, and so therefore we tried to stop him from doing what he was doing, and he, that was casting out demons in your name. And that's not right, because that belongs to us, not him. It's basically what John is saying. He's getting competitive. He's like, wait a minute, this is for us to do. And Jesus makes it very, very clear that this is not about, that following Jesus is not about personal gain, and it's not pride in our group. It's not personal gain or pride in our church or our group that we happen to be with. But it's about the kingdom going forth. And Jesus says very clearly, if people are serving Jesus, they are on the same team. We all have a part to play. To compare and to compete with others is not healthy for our spiritual Christian life. And Jesus makes it very clear when he says, if anyone gives you a cup of water... Uh, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Whoever has a part to play, whoever loves Jesus, whoever is serving him, we're all on the same team and we need to look at each other that way. And quit trying to compete or think that we're better or worse than other people. That's not the point. We need to serve faithfully where God has put us and allow others to serve faithfully where he has put them. Because it's not about how important we are, but it's about how important he is. Finally, Jesus challenges his disciples in this passage on causing the weak to stumble. Jesus challenges his disciples on causing the weak to stumble. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him that a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus doesn't mince any words. A millstone is not just this little stone you might have in your mind. This is a giant, huge millstone that nobody would even be able to get away from. And Jesus makes it very clear that it is important that we do not think that we are so important that we cause others to stumble. What does that mean? I think in the context of this passage, we see that part of making one to stumble, a weak one, by the way, a a young one that he's talking about, is not, he did have kids, he was, he did have the child earlier, and the child is probably still in his lap, but he's really just talking about the least of people. Like, the least important people don't cause them to sin. That might even refer to the person who is casting out demons that was not part of their group. Jesus is trying to say that don't cause anyone to sin. Those little ones, these weak ones, these young ones, don't cause them to sin. Don't cause them to walk away from their faith. Don't stop them from serving and doing what they need to be doing for God because you somehow want to get your importance and you are putting that ahead of them. Don't cause them to sin. The other part of this is simply by making themselves more important than others. By saying somehow we are the ones that, like we just saw, we are the ones that can do the ministry. Everyone else needs to follow in line with us. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, if you will lead someone who is weak into sin, into stumble, then we are, you are putting your importance above theirs. That's not humility, that's pride. And Jesus says that's not the call of the disciple. So we'll move into our third thing that we're going to look at today. Our sense of importance is something that we need to give to Christ and find our significance in Him as a servant. But the final thing we will see today is that self-sacrifice includes abandoning even our sinful tendencies. See, discipleship means sacrificing self-indulgence. Sacrificing self-indulgence. Many of us know this to be true, 
But some of us may not live as though we believe it's true. Here we find ourselves in verse 43 through 50. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better to you to enter life lame than with two feet and thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if its salt loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So Jesus, in saying that discipleship involves sacrificing self-indulgence, Jesus describes the severity of sin. Jesus describes the severity of sin. Jesus uses what we would call hyperbole. All right, that's exaggeration. Uh, and he uses that for a very important purpose because he wants to show that sin is a serious issue and it's not to be taken lightly. Jesus says some really hard, crazy things. He says, if, you sin, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He says, if your foot causes you to sin cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. This is crazy stuff. But what Jesus is saying is sin is so, so important that you need to stay away from it. This is not to be taken lightly, that it should make you to the point where you are willing to sacrifice things and sacrifice in order to stay pure, in order to live a life that is away from sin, not per, not perfection. We all stumble This is talking about sin that is habitual, a sin that has taken over our life, a sin that we continue to do and can't get control of. But Jesus says, uh, he doesn't expect us to literally mutilate ourselves, right? Do not walk away from here and go home and get out your kitchen knives and start to cut off body parts. That's not the point. If you do that, you'll probably go somewhere else that's not a church, probably an insane asylum. Don't do it. Don't cut off your body parts. That's not the point. The point here is that we need to be willing to live a life of radical amputation of the things in our life that keep us from Christ. Classic example of this I use with, uh, with teen and college boys and, and, you know, and there's no question there, we live in a society in which pornography has taken over this world. Everywhere you look, there's a new uh, way to access pornography. And one thing I say is, look, if you're struggling with pornography, for instance, get rid of your phone. Get rid of your computer. And people say, wait a minute, you can't live this life without a phone. You can't live life without a computer. Listen, people have been doing it for thousands of years. I'm pretty sure it can be, it can be done. That's one example. I don't know what it is for you, but what is it in your life that is causing you to sin, that is a distraction from your relationship with Jesus? And Jesus says, it is important It is so important, you should be willing to make sacrifices in order to stay away from sin. And I don't know what that is for you. It might even be having to sacrifice where you work. I don't know. But whatever it is for you, what do you need to sacrifice to say, Jesus, it's worth sacrificing this so that I'm not continuing in sin. Jesus wants us to make make it that important. That we do not indulge in our desires, but instead we walk away from them and walk towards Him. Part of the process of this, Jesus then points to eternal thinking. Jesus points to eternal thinking. And basically what he says is, having our physical body destroyed is better than having our soul cast into hell. He's saying, look, all the stuff that you have in this world is nothing compared to what you're going to have later if you'll just be faithful. And Jesus is making it very clear that if you are going to be his disciple and his follower, 
You are going to do what you can to trust Him and depend upon Him. We've already talked about that. To understand that we need to serve and that our importance comes from Him. But then in all of that, understanding that through His power and through what He's given us, then we can live a life that is not self-indulgent, but a life that we are sacrificing whatever it takes for purity and to stay away from sin. Which is the last point here. Jesus insists on our purity. Jesus insists on purity. This statement here says, All will be salted with fire. I'm not going to lie to you here. This is a weird phrase. We don't see it anywhere else in Scripture. I've read so many commentaries and so many understandings of what this, this means. And there are so many different opinions. And I'm not going to stand here and say that there is a one opinion that is above all the rest when it talks about being salted with fire. But one thing that came through as I studied this was that salt had a very specific purpose in the Old Testament. Some of you might not even realize this, but in order to purify meat that was going to be offered on the altar, they would use salt. They would pour salt on the sacrifice. It was done to purify the sacrifice before it was given. Interesting thing that I learned this week was that. And, and so I think we see that. And then fire, obviously, sacrifices were burned up. The idea of a sacrifice that was being given, that was being purified through the salt and through the fire, that there's this idea of being salted with fire. It makes sacrifices pure. It refines Christians, right? Salt would refine a Christian. Salt and fire, it refines us. But for those who aren't a believer, it would eat them away. Because he says everyone will be salted with fire. And like I said, I don't know exactly what he means, but I know it does have something to do with purification. See, Christians must live a life that purifies the world around them. Being salt that has not lost its usefulness. That's what Jesus ends with. He says, look, if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Salt has a lot of uses. And I know there's the salt of the earth uh, in Matthew that we could talk about. And, and there's flavoring and there's preserving. And there's all these different things that salt does. But one thing that salt does do and that it, it purifies, it cleans. And so therefore, I I believe, as we come to this passage, this end, which is a little confusing, Jesus is saying, on the heels of just talking about staying away from sin, that we need to live pure lives, and that not only do we need to live a life of salt, that we have purity within ourselves, that we are seeking purity, but also then that we will have salt in ourselves, but be at peace with one another, that it will go out, that that salt will also be used to purify others. Not that we can purify them, only the blood of Jesus can, but we can be the one that points them that direction. And so this morning, in our first part of looking at what discipleship looks like, what does self-sacrifice look like? We've seen a a few very important things. We need to start by understanding that we need to sacrifice our self-dependence. That we need to depend upon God and not our own strength. That we need to go to Him in prayer and seek His face and ask for His help and ask for His power. We've also seen that a disciple, one who is following Jesus, will, not, will have to sacrifice their self-importance. Do we live a life in which we feel like we need to make ourselves look as good as we possibly can because we want to feel important? We want to feel significant. The only true significance we will ever find is in Jesus Christ and serving Him. And if you are searching for that in any other way, you're not going to find it. And then finally... If those things are true, if we're truly relying on Jesus and we're relying on Him for our significance, then we need to walk away from our self-indulgence. 
We need to live a life that is pure from sin. And like I said, this is not perfection. Someday when we get to see Jesus, He'll make us perfect. But right now, we still have the flesh. So right now we still fight and we still sin. But if we find ourselves being overcome by a sin, we need to fight it and we need to ask Him for His help and we need to be willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to be pure. I believe we live in a world today, and, I'll, and I'm including myself in this, a world today and a church today that is not willing to do hard things to run away from sin. We will excuse sin. We will make it sound not so bad as it really is. We'll do whatever it takes to make ourselves feel better, but we're not willing to sacrifice the comfort of our life in order to fight against sin. And Jesus says, you should even be willing to maim yourself and go to heaven than to go to hell because you will not follow me by walking away from sin. That we need to be willing to sacrifice whatever it takes. Are we willing to do that? Which leads me to my final conclusion, the last three questions that we will leave with. First of all, do we have faith in Jesus over having faith in ourselves? This is to those today who maybe you've never come to know Jesus as your Savior. It's to those who you've lived your whole life just believing that life is about you. Life is about yourself. And you can rely on yourself for whatever you need. Well, Jesus came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He died for you because you have sinned. You've gone against his rules. You've gone against his law. You've said to him, I'm going to do things my way and not your way. Everyone has sinned. The Bible says that's true, and it is true. And therefore, we deserve hell. We deserve punishment. We deserve to be separated from God forever. And yet Jesus died for us. He took the the penalty of our sins so that God would be satisfied. He died for us, as he's told us he's going to do. And in Mark, we see his, he constantly telling his disciples, we need to remember that Jesus is willing to suffer and die. And he is the example of self-sacrifice. And he sacrificed himself for you and for me and for all of us who will come to him in faith and say, I believe in your sacrifice, Jesus, and I believe so much that I'm going to repent by turning away from my life and living for yours. That's the whole point. And then he rose again to say, look, I have defeated sin and death. And you can trust me and know that I have complete control over everything. And I have validated my death because I have lived again. And that's what Jesus says. And he's waiting for us. And if you will come to him in faith and accept him, commit your life to Jesus, he will save you. And you can start living a life in which you have faith in Jesus instead of a faith in yourselves. But I would also say even for us who have made professions of faith, Do we truly believe what Jesus has said? Do we truly live like we believe what Jesus has said? Because like the man with the son that's possessed, if you can, do we have a mentality of thinking, oh, when we pray, Jesus, if you can do this, if you're able, then do it. Or do we have a mentality of, Jesus, I believe you can do anything and everything you want to do, and I put it completely in your hands. I pray that you would will to do this. And do we truly pray? Do we truly put faith in Jesus over having faith in ourselves? Do we pray to him and ask him for help? Is our prayer life dwindling? Those are questions we've got to ask. 
Second question, do we find importance or significance in anything other than Jesus? Do you find your importance or your significance maybe in your job, in your family, in whatever it might be, in a sport you play? And I don't know what it is, but do you find your importance or your significance trying to make yourself feel good, trying to make yourself look the best you possibly can, and you're forgetting that what Jesus said is what's most important and what's most significant is getting low, being lowly, humble, and serving one another. I think all of us can grow in this area. Consider that. And then finally, are we really fighting against sin and for purity in our lives and for purity in those around us? Are we really fighting against sin or are we justifying it and just letting it be? Next week, we will continue to look at the other marks of a disciple, what Jesus says discipleship looks like, what Jesus says self-sacrifice looks like. I hope you join us as we continue and we see what Mark has to say. Let's stand and sing our final song together.